You know when you've got like a plastic drinks bottle? Yeah. Right, water or a sports drink or whatever. Does anyone actually like the little nozzles? Oh, the one like the LucasAid ones. Well, yeah, like I've I've got a, a LucasAid now, like some isotonic thing because I'm I'm yeah. under the weather, so I'm apologies in advance because I'm going to sound like shit because I feel like it. Okay, so we I've, I've got to lay on the table like for the listener exactly what kind of nozzle thing we're talking about here because if we're talking about LucasAid, we're talking about like sort of a nozzle, but it's got almost like a like a one way valve in the top of it. Yeah. Yeah. You've, yeah, you've got to kind of suction through and you get like high powered pressure liquid coming through. Yeah. Because you've had to suck liquid through I a. I hate it. Through a weird valve. I kind of like it, but I, I get that it's it's weird. I think it's my own particular brand of autism where like sucking on straws and things like just makes my skin crawl. I don't like the feel of it. Ah, see, I'm. I'm... I'm the opposite end of the spectrum. Gotta have straws. Fucking love being able to direct where the sensory is gonna be. Ah, you see, I'm yeah, I'm the other way around. I I don't like my lips and cheeks being sort of closed and doing sucks ah. It makes me feel. It's the same feeling as like my fingers touching denim. I, it just makes me feel like ah ah. I can I can get and respect that. I know it is a divisive choice of bottle top that they have employed. It drives me up the wall. Um, looks they do that that sort of high pressure one. But any any water bottle or sports drink bottle where it's like a small nozzle. Like if I will just you know um, unscrew the entire thing so I can drink normally. The only way I get round it is to just, like, open my mouth, squash it, and just, like, feel a super soaker blast just hit me in the tonsils. <laughs> it's just a series of mechanisms designed to slow down you getting the drink you want. Mm -hmm. Fewer barriers between you and the drink. Why are they trying to artificially limit your ability to throw the whole bottle of drink down your face in one go? I'm, an, I'm, I'm a responsible adult. I should be able to govern. My own intake of leukocyte. You're, you're a responsible adult who should be allowed to make your own irresponsible decisions. My own irresponsible sports drink based decisions. Um, and that's really what this podcast has been about. You know, eight years ago, I, I contacted Laura and I contacted um, Gavin Dunn at the time. And I just said, right, folks, we got to sort this out. We've, we've got to found a podcast based around sports drink... Uh, choice, freedom of choice. Yeah, and look, it's a slow burn because we knew no one was going to click on the podcast if we told people that's what it was all about. So, you know, g give it give it like 400 episodes of a fake premise to get here. Now it's finally time. Yeah. We, we gotta we gotta get to down a brass tacks of acceptable drink bottle tops. We've got their trust. Now look, folks, like I realise that we've, we've pulled a bit of a switcheroo on you here. You went through the door under false pretenses, but this is a LucasAid fancast for LucasAid and LucasAid-based lifestyles. I don't like LucasAid very much. I like the raspberry-flavoured LucasAid Sports isotonic drink. I like that one, which is what I've got. I don't like LucasAid. It tastes weird. It tastes like if cough syrup wasn't trying. <laughs> I, it, I feel weird responding saying I quite enjoy it. Because you're not wrong with that description. <laughs> I used to like the little sweets. They for a little while they had like energy 
tablets. Oh, the sort of just glucose tablets that yeah. just turned to sort of like creamy powder in your mouth. They tasted nice. They were nice. They were just orange sugar. It was great. It was pretty good. I realised that our American listeners probably don't know what we're fucking talking about. Conrad. Conrad. I don't think we... I don't think uh, America has a LucasAid. I feel very betrayed. I feel very betrayed uh, being brought into this show after 250 episodes <laughs> and never being told that it was oh shit some sort of uh, uh, beverage thing. I never got you your copy of the almanac. Fuck. Oh shit. I I just assumed the email had been sent out. I, I you know I didn't bring it up because I just it was such an obvious premise of the show. I assumed you knew. Well, yeah. Like I I thought at the very least, like because sometimes I would be like, God, did I send him that almanac? Wait, what? Even if I didn't, he'll pick it up. The context clues are there. Um, so I'm a little surprised. So I'll tell you what, right? I'll hold my hands up to some of it, but limited accountability on this one, Conrad. Look, I'll put some. I'm going to put some of the blame on you, Conrad. Have you been reading like the show notes in the in the group chat thoroughly? Because like I've mentioned many times, this week isn't the one where we reveal that this is a drinks cast. <laughs> Oh, that that's what that was always about. Yeah. Oh, every week yeah. again with the now this isn't the week, it's a drinks cast. Oh, that that clears a lot yeah, up, yeah. actually. There we go. There we go. So we're gonna rename this this show um talking about snacks. And, <laughs> and that's what we're we're all about. Um how is everyone? I feel like utter fucking shit. it's yeah. not COVID. No, but you got that cold after after your last show. Well, I think I got the cold from um um Fee's partner James, <sighs> I reckon. But I think it protected me. Oh. Because there are a couple people um from the Manchester gig that have got the Rona. Oh. I've I had to sort of like warn Sovereign Pro today. So I think like my my body was already like taken up because mm-hmm. I'd yeah. met the people that tested positive. Like they the sort of um friends sort of within the same friends circle. Yeah, as we know, it's a it's against the law to have two illnesses at once. So, you know, Rona had to had to bugger off. It's it's sort of true, I think. I'm not I'm not a a, a girl of science. Like, hey, we got here first, pal. Get the fuck out. Uh... I've never had two colds at once, like or two two sort of similar illnesses at once. So, I'm assuming that in generally, in in, in viral terms, we're like we got an occupancy of one. That's what I'm assuming. Either way, um, tests have been taken. Like, Fee's not got it. Um, and I picked this up off Fee, so should be good. Well, now you see here, meanwhile, in my house, uh, my partner Linda does have COVID. Oh, no. Yeah. And and, and she's the sort of person who uh, catastrophizes and loves to, like, um, uh, look up information to comfort her that only makes her more anxious. Of course. Um, and, and and so I'm going to toss a little fun fact your way. You can apparently have multiple strains of coronavirus. At once. At once. Oh. I'll tell you what, that, uh, the human body is an efficient marvel, is it not? <laughs> well, y- you know who can't have multiple strains of COVID at once? <laughs> Me. I'm about to get my, I think it's my sixth or seventh COVID vaccine. Jesus I'm, Christ. I'm still collecting. I'm got offered the, the annual annual booster after all of my fucking being in my, my COVID vaccine trials. You have been vaxxed to fuck. I'm collecting them like Dragon Balls or fucking Infinity <laughs> Stones. I'm just like, just give give me all of them. I'll, hopefully I'll unlock 
wishes. Oh, mate, bring back Yamcha. Yeah. I think that's a Dragon Ball reference. That is a Dragon Ball reference. Oh, yes, yeah. mate. Let me get all seven of the COVID vaccines and make a wish to a big dragon. There we go. That's how it's done. Uh, right. Um, I had a really good weekend. I might feel like shit now, but I had a really good weekend. I had a good weekend too. I was out in front of a crowd. I'm told there was 500 in attendance Ooh. at the debut Sovereign Pro show in Manchester, uh, where I... Got to choke slam Kid Bandit onto Simon Miller's back. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And I also did a double choke slam then too at once. It was pretty fucking cool. Oh, that double choke slam is fucking beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Definitely 100% um, a one way street in terms of who does the work on that. Um, to- totally amazing. Um, no, it was fa- fucking amazing. Yeah. The, um, the crowd reaction was deafening, like overwhelmingly fucking deafening you know my my debut at north wrestling i mean you've been in the crowd uh laura for a a north wrestling yeah yeah crowd reaction to yours truly and that's loud but when 500 people are doing it and almost all of them uh seem to be on my side i spoke to shotty horror backstage when i was nervous as fuck and he just went oh wait no 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 this is your crowd um apparently they sort of did a little intro stuff at the beginning of like who are you here to see and then they rattled off names and apparently the place went off at my name and i can believe it because yeah it it was incredible a man picked me up uh easton reese is a pretty strong boy um i got picked up off my feet and held up and that's not a usual feeling for me i'll give i'll, I'll say that much uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, uh, you know, got to fight Kid Bandit and Simon Miller at the same time, and standing across the ring from them was surreal. Uh, I got Simon Miller one on one this Saturday in Blackpool, so I'm very excited about that too. It's been a whirlwind few weeks between founding Spectrum and and yeah. debuting with Soft Pro and fighting Simon Miller in in at the weekend. Um, and a few months ago, I was told I wasn't good enough to wrestle on someone's show, so. Just saying, if I'm coming out to a crowd reactions equal that of Kid Bandit and then choke slamming them onto Miller's back, I think I'll 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 if I traded that in to be good enough, I don't think I'd take that fucking offer. Not that I'm bitter. You make a good point. It sounds like you've had a very good week, but 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 I, I I'm gonna make this about me. I've I've had a very eventful week. They released a tr- a poster for the for the Mario movie, the cr- the Chris Pat terrible Mario movie. Oh yes, and yes. at the time at the time that we record this, um, the trailer like I think when this go this goes live, the trailer still won't have come out, but like the poster's up right now. Mario has no ass, and I had a very eventful day yesterday, as people tagged me in threads about like, hey, ask the person who wrote the book about Mario's ass to explain why Mario needs a better ass. That was my yesterday, and I've never felt more culturally relevant than when I'm getting tagged in like the comments of IGN and Polygon articles going, why didn't you interview the Mario's ass lady about Mario's missing ass? He has no ass on the poster. Why are you not asking the important questions? That, that's how my week's gone. <laughs> a few months ago, they told you you weren't good enough to write a book about Mario's ass. Right. You know, there were there were there were days where you know I I worried maybe maybe I've not got it in me to write a book about Mario's ass, and now when Mario has no ass in a movie poster, who do people come to? Oh, it's me, right? The Noah of Mario's ass. They they light the butt signal, <laughs> and you arrive on the scene. I can't. This is the first time I've actually looked at it. That is a 
that's a travesty. Right? Right? Like that there is just there is just nothing there, right? Yeah. Nothing at all. I mean, if it were any smaller, it'd be concave. The man's a plumber. It's a character identifying feature that he have a slightly outsized arse. He lands on like enemies' heads with his ass. Right? Like, that's gonna fuck his tailboat up hard now. There's no cushion for that pushing. Look, if we talk about Mario's ass from, like, a functional perspective, it needs to do two things. It needs to have enough muscle mass to be able to do jumping and hitting the blocks up above him. He's gotta jump, he's gotta have glutes, but he's gotta have rested on his laurels enough that he's got padding on that ass. He's got a layer of fat over the muscle so that he can do ground pounds. Neither of those is represented in this ass. I realize he's wearing overalls and not jeans, but there is no low-rise jean on earth that's gonna show me his crack while he's working underneath my sink. That's just not gonna happen. Here's, here's the thing. If the tailored cut on the uh, on the overalls wasn't such to like really accentuate the upper leg as being slender, I think he could have gotten away with it. Mm. If you have deliberately baggy overalls, you can hide it. But these seem tailored to highlight his lack of an ass. It it got he's got an almost Donkey Kong esque shape in the sort of like top top half is you know top heavy, and then it really tapers in at the ass. It's uh. It's, <sighs> Yeah, I mean, look, people complained about Sonic, right? People, people yeah. got all in a snit about Sonic's, you know, wildly misshapen body, but this is worse. There is only one scenario in which I think this is acceptable, and reminder, this will be going live before the movie trailer releases uh, on Thursday, so I, I, this better be what the trailer's about. This needs to be a a a story of the of him getting the ass. This is the origin story of his flabby ass. The next thing they're going to tell us is that they're going to have changed his brown eye to blue. <laughs> I'm just, as the possessor of a big fat mommy domper, I just see this as yet another example of erasure. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. This is big fat mommy domper erasure. Look, if the trailer doesn't start with Chris Pratt going, Hi, it's a me, Mario, I need to get a better ass. If that's not the first line of the trailer, I'm disappointed, weak ruined. Maybe Bowser kidnapped his ass this time. <gasps> oh my god. Okay, cool. That, yes. If, if this is about a movie about Mario getting his... <gasps> and that makes sense because it's a movie made by Illumination, the people that made Minions, who are all about uh, lowbrow, yeah, bottom-of-the-barrel yeah. children's humour. A stolen ass is perfect for children. Ha ha ha. The princess is in another asshole. Oh. <sighs> it's all coming together now. It's all coming together. Movie movie script written. It's baffling. It's honestly... <laughs> like, like all, all jokes aside, it's honestly baffling baffling that they've done it like it everything to do with character design comes down to a choice at the end of the day yeah right and and at some point there was a choice to give him a small ass and it's baffling as i reiterate many times in the hit piece of scholarly literature things i learned from mario's butt available now at all fine booksellers exactly um no Character design is ever accidental, particularly when we're talking about 3D modeling. Someone had to go in and make a decision about what that ass should look like. And this, this is this is Mario by committee. This is ass by committee, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so th th this is not just one person to blame. What it is, everybody is to blame for not preventing this outcome. Yeah, for not looking at that and saying, "Hey, wait a minute." 
We forgot the ass. Now, you know what outcome we've also almost forgotten? That this is a video games podcast. Yeah. Hey, who who's played video games this week? Probably Steph. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> played a couple. Well, I watched you play Dreamlight Valley, but we've already gone over that. Well, we've already gone over that. There's nothing more to report on Dreamlight Valley. Like, it's just exactly the same as I said the other uh, the other week. And I have stopped playing it. I played it sort of fairly enraptured for two days, streamed it uh, a third time around thinking, well, you know, this will take up the time. And it was unbearable. It was unbearable playing it for the stream where I thought it would be easier because sometimes games like that are pretty good when you're streaming. Very low mental energy required. Yeah. You just do some rote tasks and then you can concentrate on chatting shit, being entertaining, talking to chat. But it was sucking the life out of me. Rather than free up mental energy, it was diminishing it at a rapid pace just through how fucking boring it was. So that is a shame. But at least I'm live streaming again. At least Virgin Broadband yeah. have pulled their fucking fingers out and turned up and got the internet now. I downloaded um, Gears of War Ultimate Edition just to have something to download, just to try it. And it downloaded the same day. I could have wept. It didn't take days to download a game. Oh. So, so I'm I'm living life in the uh, the veritably fast lane now. You're living the most bougie of lives. You can download things again. Yeah, I didn't put it down on the show notes, by the way. But I've been playing some Gears of War shit as well. But, but yeah, Dreamlight Valley. Um, yeah, it's it's dull. It didn't look compelling in any no. No. in any way. No. It's gorgeous. It is beautiful. Very pretty to look at. I, and I love, I love the character model that you know, you your your avatar that you like. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's really cute. Like, you can make some very cute character designs in this. Yeah, it's got some good good customization there. But the actual the actual gameplay is so pointlessly governed by an energy meter that you've got to constantly eat to refill or go into your house and stand there for literally like the moment you're through the door, the energy is refilled, and it must be a holdover. From when this game was a lot more, had a lot more of Gameloft mobile experience baked into it. Right. I feel like this game was, the monetization was way worse at some point in development. Mm. It's the only way to explain uh, some of the grindier elements of this game. The energy meter is, is like the most egregious example. Like, why is it there? There's literally no point to it being there. Okay. All right. I, 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 now the, the... The spin doctor in me. There's certainly not a spin-off doctor in you. We haven't done those in fucking ages. No, no, not lately. This is intended to limit a child's playtime. Nope. No, no, no. I'm just saying that that's how they're gonna... <laughs> it doesn't... That, that doesn't wash because you just then eat food or go into your house and then you just keep playing again. Like, that's the thing that, that grasps me about this. It doesn't limit anything. Right. It, it's just inconveniences. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't change the game outside of you have to open the menu or you have to walk back to your house. It doesn't actually stop you doing anything. But it feels, it feels like it was meant to at some point. Yes, that's the thing. Yeah, it looks like a holdover because that type of energy meter has been in um, like microtransaction-fueled games 
since Farmville sure. and, and probably yeah. before. Um, it's a mainstay of mobile games, which, again, this game was de- de- developed by Gameloft. It's such a mainstay of, of, of those things where energy is usually uh, replenished via a currency mm-hmm. that is very limited and usually paid for with real money. Um, but because the monetization in this game is kind of uh, more insidiously placed, more squirreled away, I do feel like at some point it must have been harder to recoup that energy without paying for it. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's the only way. That or it's it's purely a lack of, of um, ability to have an original idea. And I see this in games sometimes too, where a feature is in the game not because it makes it better or even makes contextual sense for the game, but because other games in that genre have it. So they have it too. Sometimes it's even just, that's how we usually make games and we can't think of doing it a different way in a different context. Exactly. Just an inability to imagine doing it another way. So it could be that that's the most generous read I have on it, is sheer intellectual stubbornness. Uh, I hesitate to say laziness, but certainly certainly a, um, a lack of imagination that they simply can't envision doing it another way. Because it's how they always do it. Because in terms of of gameplay or even potential to monetize, it brings and does nothing. Nothing except inconvenience the player. It's just annoying. For no end. No reason. So it's very confusing. And that's about all I I can add because everything else I said last time around is... is, It still holds true. Uh, It's just fucking boring. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is about the biggest thing you can give a game is just it's boring. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll talk about a thing I've played. I I don't have to say too much about this one, but I finished playing through uh, Return to Monkey Island uh, this week. Generally, really enjoyed that game with like one caveat I'll get to in a minute. But like most of the way throughout, I thought it was like very charmingly written. Uh, the puzzle design, at least in the sort of casual default difficulty. There was very little in the way of bullshit puzzles. There was very little in the way of moon logic that required you to, like, mash A on B until C happened. It was a well-paced, funny, sweet adventure that I generally think works really well, with one exception. I really don't think the ending of this game works. And I'm trying to work out how to talk about this in spoiler-minimal fashion. I think the game, through most of its runtime, makes it clear that while you're ostensibly going on a quest to go find the secret of Monkey Island, it's made clear throughout, maybe, maybe, you know, that's not the not the most important thing in the world, and, you know, maybe, maybe stop and think about that for a second. And I'm okay with the idea of an ending that plays around with subversion of expectation, if done correctly. That, well, that wasn't that kind of a thing in the original Monkey Island? Yeah. That nobody even knew what the secret of Monkey Island was, that there was a secret there? Yeah, and like, here's the thing. I'm hesitant to say too much about the ending. Sure. But like, all of these things in theory, I understand. And I think there's a really good ending that you could have made with that, that they very almost did. Hmm. There's this running joke throughout Return to Monkey Island about how Guybrush is really bad at ending stories. (laughs) 
There is a framing device in this where Guybrush is telling a story of this adventure he went on to someone else, and he keeps bringing up the fact he's bad at finishing stories. And I really feel like they use that as an excuse to hand wave away having a compelling ending to this game. In a way that's like, it reminds me of Far Cry Blood Dragon when it tried to do the, here's an annoying, irritating tutorial because we're making fun of irritating tutorials, but you still put an irritating tutorial in. Right. It kind of has that kind of feel. It, right when it's reaching its climax, it just completely does uh, a random turn to something else, doesn't explain why the fuck it did that, and then tries to, with no context sort of get back to what it was doing. Also, and I feel this is really important to note, the game does not make it clear, A, that there are multiple endings to the game, and B, how close the ending is to a- is to occurring. So there is a dialogue choice that looks like any other dialogue choice in the game that, without much warning... Ends the game. Ends the game, huh. and gives you one of five endings depending on which of the five choices you picked. And if you if you're anything like me... And you go through games like this, working down the list from top to bottom, picking every dialogue choice to see all the content before you finish the dialogue. Right. Yeah. You click on the first option and it's like, no, no, no. That was you committing to an ending. You can get some really fucking narratively unfulfilling endings because you don't realise this is a serious choice that's impacting how this narrative's going to end. Cool. And look, this is literally like the last ten minutes of the game. And... There are certain endings which, if you pick them, I'm like, okay, I see what you were going for. I see what you were trying to do. You kind of closed up the narrative threads you were leading up to. I just feel really let down by this ending. I want to talk about it at some point in like just completely spoilery terms because it's not enough to make me not have enjoyed the game. Right. And I want to play it through again. I'm going to play it through on the harder difficulty puzzle mode. I'm going to play it again. And knowing that this bad ending is coming, I can brace for it. But, like, I finished this game and felt cheated and confused. I went downstairs and had to go ask Jane, who is more familiar with with Monkey Island than me. Like, some big out-of-nowhere thing with no explanation happened near the end. And I had to go to Jane and go, is this a reference to a thing in a past Monkey Island that I either don't know or don't remember? And she was like, no. Nope, that's that's not a reference you're not getting. That's just... A thing that's happening. Uh, hmm. It's it's such a shame because if this this game was like leading up to such an obvious, like satisfying, like narrative conclusion that would have tied in with the themes of what the developers had been going through making the game. It would have tied into the stuff that was being seeded and built up toward. It would have been a really sweet ending to the game, and then they just don't and. It feels confusing that you don't get either the 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 dramatic action narrative you're build ending you're building up to or a good execution of the subversive narrative they're hinting at. You kind of get a third thing that uh I'm going to have to play this. I mean like I was I was I was going to eventually, but um Yeah, ge- genuinely I think it is a fascinating play and I think that like all but 5 or 10 minutes of this game is fantastic. And I think that that last five or ten minutes is fascinating to discuss, and I really want to talk about it with more people. It is... It is... I'm so intrigued by why they made the choices they did. Hmm. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll try to get on that. 
in the next couple weeks because yeah, I do want to know. I I love the series, you know, yeah, uh, and those first two games in particular, in in spite of their particular elements that are due to when they were made. The the ones we discussed a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, and both both in terms of mechanics and yeah. content, you know, there's some of that, but... Yeah, and like, to give my context of coming into this, I really enjoyed Monkey Island 1 and 2, mm-hmm. even with 2 ending with the what-the-fuck, um, like, cliffhanger unexplained shock ending. I'm not opposed to a... I I want answers and you're not giving me them ending. This doesn't do that well. Yeah. But but like it's it's such a shame because it is so throughout such a smart, caring, sweetly written Monkey Island game that I loved almost entirely otherwise. There's also a there's a tone thing about Lucasfilm games. You know, not LucasArts games, that comes later. Yeah. But there's a tone thing about Lucasfilm games that is very flippant. That's very sort of casual about its storytelling and conclusions. You see it across basically all of these fucking things. Maniac Mansion, Zack McCracken, and Monkey Island is no exception. Now... Is this a function of that kind of philosophy coming from these creators who are returning to this together for the first time in decades, or is it just bad? I don't know. I can't wait to play. I feel like... Because here's the thing. I, I want to say this like the, the best way I can without spoilers. I think there is a very slightly trimmed version of this ending that works amazingly. Right. I think that they inserted one scene in that adds nothing and makes no sense and is just confusing. And I think if they had removed that and they had gone from we're coming up to the climax of what we expect the end of the adventure to be to conversation, it could have been a fantastic ending. But they insert a scene in the middle that I just don't understand what they were trying to achieve with. Hmm. It's fascinating. Anyway, Conrad, what have you been playing this week? Oh, I finished Bioshock 2. Yeah? And, uh, yeah, and I'd just like to, uh, go back and reiterate everything I said about Bioshock 2 in the last episode. Nothing's changed there. I even forgot how it ends. Like, the last moment of gameplay in Bioshock 2, Mm. where you are running and you're behind... Your daughter, who is, I can't even remember her name, Eleanor. You're behind Eleanor, and you're running out, and then all of a sudden you come around the corner, there's that huge pile of explosives. Spoilers for Bioshock 2. And then it blows up, and that's how gameplay ends. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I liked that. That's like my favorite part of this fucking game. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, is weird. Um, It's so fascinating, because it follows... Every beat of Bioshock. Like, they're like, hey, we're doing it again. We're getting the gang back together. We're doing it again. And I was like, well, I could just just gone back and done it again. You didn't... Yeah, it's a, it's a bummer. But then I started playing Minerva's Den, which is the, uh, the second DLC that they released for Bioshock 2. And this is much better. It's just much better. 
If for some reason you got Bioshock 2 and were disappointed or just forgot about it, you know, because months had passed and you never got around to playing Minerva's Den, you should. It's, it's an intimate story, but it adds actually a lot to Rapture. It doesn't feel out of place, despite being wholly separated from anything going on exterior to the events of that. Albeit theoretically having implications, but not it, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. It's self-contained. It's well-written. There are interesting characters with motivations, and the ideas that it introduces are very cool. It is a good short Bioshock experience. Uh, it does differ in a few ways that I'd forgotten about it. It's super linear. Mm. And, and Bioshock 2 is very linear also, in a way that Bioshock 1 felt more open because you kept passing back through areas, whereas in Bioshock 2, you take a train to a spot, you do things there, and then you move on. This is just even more explicitly linear than that, even in the way that you, like, get your weapons you pick up a weapon and that's your weapon now there's no using power to the people stations to upgrade them later you might find an upgraded version of your weapon lying around and you'll pick that up and replace your old one and it's possible to just like miss weapons which is fine because later that you'll find an upgraded one maybe i completely missed the machine gun i think in the first section of the game it also you al you almost do have to have played Bioshock recently, or Bioshock 2 recently, to play Minerva's Den. You don't have to play a lot of it, but just enough to, like, refamiliarize yourself if it's been a long time since you've played. Because it's operating under the assumption that you are very familiar with Bioshock. Uh, you're getting a bunch of the guns and a bunch of the plasmids right out the gate and expected to be able to use them against generally late-game enemies or mid-game and later enemies from the series. So, it doesn't fuck around. It launches you right in. That's great for pacing. And you do... You feel less of the sense of exploration in Minerva's Den, but the content is so much better within that that I don't give a shit. And then it's over in, like, four hours. It's, that's what I wanted. I really, I shouldn't have played Bioshock 2 at all. It's just I'd forgotten what it was. Uh, but Minerva's Den is great. And, and people should play that. So, yeah. Yeah. Steph, you play anything else? Yeah. Um, there's that one I played several weeks ago that I forgot to mention. And because of that, I'm not going to be able to tell you very much. Because of my, like, terrible lack of memory. But I did want to mention a game called Franken which is available for free on Itch. Uh, it's a, a turn-based RPG that you can play in like under an hour. Uh, it's very funny. It, it is uh, poking a lot of uh, fun at um, RPG convention. Uh, it could quite readily be compared with Undertale. It's got a lot of that similar sense of humor, but I do think it stands on its own as well. For example, um, like one of the... the less upfront jokes is the fact that you fight a spider that looks like a scorpion then you fight a scorpion and it's the same model recolored and then you fight lobsters at the beach and it's the same model 
there's uh, one fight with like a, a, a living three. I think it's called like three man or something. It does three damage and you only deal three damage, but it's got more hit points than you. Uh, so mathematically, it's going to kill you. Except it gets you down to three hit points and it's satisfied and it stops. Mm. Um, they throw in like like the soundtrack like is is taken from like all sorts of TV shows and stuff. At one point, the Blake Seven theme starts, which is such a a reference that I burst out laughing. It's really fun. I won't say much more than that, mostly because again, I I can't remember details of things after a while. But it's free. It's called Franken. It's on itch. You said it's like an hour-ish long? Super quick, yeah. You, you should be able to do it in like under an hour, I think. Nice. Um, yeah, it's it's well worth checking out. It's it's quite entertaining, quite amusing. Cool. Other stuff I've played this week has all been like very small finishing stuff off. I went back into playing The Binding of Isaac, Afterbirth, plus Repentance, whatever the, whatever the most recent up-to-date bit of Binding of Isaac is. And finally started getting to some of the content in that that I hadn't made it to before. For those of you who are like familiar with that game, I've reached the point where uh, like at the end of the first floor, there's always a room that can be unlocked with a key in the boss room mm-hmm. that lets me go down into some sewers. And then a few floors later, there is a door in a boss room that if I have two bombs, I can go down and it takes me into the sort of burnt ashy area. Yeah, and I've been going around exploring some of that content that I just... I had to restart my save file at some point, and it took a while to get back to that point. Um, I've been finding some weapons that I, like, hadn't experienced before that are just really fucking fun. Uh, the Black Hole? The Black Hole is fun. The, the Black Hole is so fun. I love it. It's great. Not really much to, else to say other than The Binding of Isaac continues to be a game with an unholy amount of content in it, and it's great. The other thing I finished, and I know that, Conrad, you were near to finishing this the other week when we talked about it. I finished Trombone Champ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that game did not outstay its welcome. Nope. It, it definitely was a little too obtuse, I think, with a couple of those last couple of things you gotta do. Right? That that victory condition setup is yeah. very specific and not made clear enough. Certain parts of it make some sense yes. like in hindsight i can look at it and go i understand what what was trying to hint at most of those things right like all of this information was communicated to me in some form but it was done poorly in certain aspects or not connected together well enough for me to have made the the, the association yeah right but like that aside it is a fun silly little game it's got a lot of charm. The writing was very amusing. Yes, it's very funny. I I found myself chuckling a lot at that game outside of my own poor trombone playing, which was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, that game is worth it's worth it what, maybe five hours it'll take to yeah. to see it through and it's it's neat. Yep. It's good. Yeah. You played anything else this week, Steph or Conrad, either of you? I played um, Middle Earth Shadow of War. Oh, wow. It's on Game Pass and I was bored. And Middle Earth Shadow of War, of course, is the sequel to Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, which was a critically acclaimed game, um, earned a lot of goodwill, and Warner Brothers spunked all of that goodwill up the wall with Shadow of War by making it a a loot box-riddled nightmare. The 
PR backlash on that was so bad that they had to take the loot boxes out. Another fine example that we've seen many, many times of um, developers having to put in way more effort to deal with with really shitty decisions made before release rather than actually work on making the release better after release they had to drag it up to acceptable thinking that a quick buck could be made more time and effort was was poured into the game than was necessary for literally zero financial gain outside of the fact that they probably made a good deal of money before they did this because mm. uh, it really is about taking as much as you can um before you stop getting away with it but anyway shadow of war is one of my favorite examples of how loot boxes negatively affect a game and the way it plays because not only uh, was the entire marketplace taken out of shadow of war uh, they had to rebalance the entire game to make up for it because without without the ability to spend real money to fast track things the game was interminably grindy yeah. it was so unfun it's it's almost like you could draw a direct line between those two data points yes indeed by the fact that yeah you can um <laughs> You know, if, if if loot boxes didn't negatively affect a game, if they were always so optional, then you wouldn't need to rebalance the way your game plays um, to account for their removal. Uh, so it's always been my favourite example of, of of what a loot box can do to a game because it's just, it's such strong evidence. But I never did go back to the game. At the time I said it was too little too late. I'd moved on. I'd played Shadow of War. I was fucking disgusted with it. Um, I think it ruined the Nemesis system because the idea of of crafting, of of interacting with all of these orcs in this hierarchy and having some of them become personal enemies and, and have their own sort of unique character traits that can grow and change. All of that was thrown out the window once the orcs themselves became contents of loot boxes. Once orcs were loot, the nemesis system fell apart. Because at that point, it's not a unique experience uh, with, with characters that change over time. They're just drops. They're just content. So it undermined the whole thing. Now, I have not touched it really since then, since uh, back when the whole game was, was a lot fresher. Uh, going back to it, it's still not a patch on, on Shadow of Mordor. Because, you know, it's it's a repeat of the Nemesis system, which was very fresh feeling with with Shadow of Mordor. And here is, is just a lot of stuff we've seen before with a few extra little toys thrown in and just so many more orcs, which doesn't help. Like, even though the, the loot box stuff's gone, you're still just, like, drowning in orc captains uh, to the point where they all bleed into each other. It, it's a lot easier for you to start seeing the same names, the same traits, the same design, um, the same enemy designs over and over with things that are supposed to be a lot more unique and, and personal to the player. It's fine. Outside of that, it does for me streaming what Dreamlight Valley didn't do. It's very low mental energy. It's, you know, interrogate an orc to find out details about one of the orc captains, look at their strengths and weaknesses, then go and kill them. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just more of that, and it's fine. 
I think there's only so much you can do once you've designed a game to support a loot box economy. There's only so much you can do to remove that vandalism. But it is a lot better without it. it it's, it's nice to just not have it. Yeah. And that's that, I guess. That'll do. That's, that's pretty much what I played. Uh, God, I feel ghastly. Well, I think if that's everything that everyone's played, should we get on to some, some newsy bits for this week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do that. We we got a few. Let me let me have a look at what's on here, just so I make sure I try and save something less terrible than could have been was safe for the end. I'm like, what what do, what do I make the last bit of news this week, and then I'll know where to start. Let's start with Activision Blizzard news, because of course there's more of it. There's always more of it. This news story broke on the same day as uh, Overwatch Two released, which I just found, uh, you know, very prescient. Following investigations, the National Labor Relations Board has found that Activision Blizzard withheld raises for QA testers at Raven Software who were campaigning to form a union. That sounds like union-busting behaviour right there, huh? Yeah. Yep. Uh, we'd, we'd heard allegations of this before, and this has now been sort of found as as part of what was going on. Yeah, it definitely seems like they were actively trying to financially disincentivize anyone being involved in the formation of a union. Because this is on the table now, it means that as part of the ongoing negotiations to come to a collective bargaining agreement, those QA testers have a much stronger footing now to go, one of the things we need you to agree to is to give those QA testers a raise in line with what they missed out on when you deliberately didn't give them a raise. So that is something that is now a, a, a chip on the table for the ongoing ongoing disputes that are going to be a back and forth for a, for a fairly long time. As stated by the NLRB chairman, this bit of news is a preliminary win for the union, um, and it does give, in, in their words, the, the QA testers a little bit of leverage moving forward. And uh, as has sort of been explained... Because it's been demonstrated that that union-busting shit went down, now the union has a position to push a bit harder in union negotiations because they can demonstrate, you treated us poorly for exercising our right to a union, we're going to make you pay for that a little bit. So we'll see what comes of that. Uh, it's in. It should be in no way surprising that Activision Blizzard did this. Yeah, I mean... The obviousness makes it no less disgusting. Yeah. Obviously, we, we, we all know that. It's just shameful. It's just shameful. Um, and, and always puts pay to, to what these corporations say in public when they, it, while they fight tooth and nail against things like unionization, they always start with that. Well, we support their right to do it. We we support the freedom to, to want to do these things. They don't. Like, they will punish you for it. While they do that, they make the case for unionization. They constantly talk about how, oh, well, these things can be resolved by us. Um, we have internal mediation for this. We have human resources for this. And look what they do. Look what they do when, when there's no checks and balances to stop them. They'll do things like this, withhold wages, um, as punishment for daring to speak up against... Uh, well, them doing things like this. Um, for them to behave exactly as they are described mm. uh, just speaks to their their unwillingness to control themselves even when they're under scrutiny and this is what they're like 
when we're all looking at them. Imagine how bad it is when the pressure's off. And that's why the pressure should always be on. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, next little bit of uh, of depressing video game industry news. A good chunk of the of the uh, the 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 writing the writing team on Disco Elysium have left working on that game's uh, sequel involuntarily. Now, there th- there is a gr- there is a good uh, Twitter thread from uh, Katie Knit uh, over over on Twitter, who has been going through the credits of the game and trying to work out. Who exactly from that writing team is still there and who was let go? It seems like of the 11-person writing team, six of them were let go, including uh, both of the lead writers. Three remain, and two are unclear right now. But at the very least, over half of the team, including both of the lead writers, were let go from that project against their will. It is very unclear exactly why this happened. The assumption would be money, but no one on any side is talking about the why right now. Yeah, so we 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 know from from founding members of that studio that the members of staff that left uh, their leaving of the company was involuntary. Uh, is is their their statement? We know that uh, designer Robert Kurvitz, writer Helen Hinsper, art director Alexander Rostov all haven't worked there and were, were pushed out of the company at least at the end of last year. So, like, they've not been involved in this for a while. And there's a lot of questions around the timing of us hearing about it now. Mm-hmm. Everything is like a big, a big mess around this right now. For their part, the development studio, I've only ever seen their name written down, so I don't know how it's pronounced, but Z-A slash U-M, they put out an incredibly boilerplate response that said absolutely nothing that was, uh, some people are not working on the game anymore, but others still are and they're working hard on it. Please still purchase product. Yeah, I saw someone um, Photoshop that as the dialogue of one of the um, <laughs> corporate characters in Disco Elysium. Yeah. Um, my God, this is a masterclass in how corporate interests like completely um, refuse to understand or appreciate or even give the slightest shit about the arts that they commodify. Yeah. And like, here's the thing. I don't want to downplay the talent or involvement or level of creative output of the people who worked on the original game and are still there. But this is a lot of people to lose all at once and a lot of very senior people to lose all at once. And there are some games where you can sort of adapt to that. I worry how well you bounce back from that with a game that so clearly was a very, very detailed love letter from people who'd had the idea in mind for a very long time. And I'm like, I don't know how well you remove those people and have it still be what it was. And I guess part of it depends on how far into the writing the game was when they were kicked out. But uh, yeah, it's a fucking mess. I'm trying to find the exact quote from the uh, from the from the studio, but it was uh, it was it was it was bad. I um, I mean, this is this is disappointing news in a lot of ways. Yeah, because. Um... This was a 
very, very successful project. It was a game that was critically well-received and ambitious and financially successful. And political. Yeah. And, you know, like, and, and it... Yeah. I, God, you know, because, I mean, I, there's, there's always the, I don't know, video games, art, whatever. This is indisputable. Yeah. It is utterly indisputable this is a piece of art. Yes. There's no, there is no objective measure you could apply to it that wouldn't make it art. Yes. And, and I'm trying to avoid being too, putting too much like auteur stuff going on here and trying to, I'm trying to avoid being too much the person whose name we know is gone and therefore it's going to be terrible. No, and and I understand and respect that. But also I feel like this is a very specific case of a very specific game that feels like so much of what it is came from yeah. This isn't a situation like where there's just an auteur left and now oh it can never be that. This is like 60-70% of like major team members. And that's not to say that there weren't other contributing people underneath. Yeah. You know, other contributions. Sure, we all collaborate. It all comes. But when it's this much of it. Yes. When it's this many and it's all of it, seemingly all of the senior folks, that is a bad combination of things to happen when you're hoping for a sequel to a very ambitious project to do the difficult second album. And now also in to have some some fairness to this, you know, that writing staff that 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 has been dropped, there are a few of them that had left even before Disco had released. Yes. You know? Um so there that's not related to this, but there are, it looks like like three, four core people like critical people at at the top uh of of this that all within a few months are one by one by one out the door. Yeah. And the suggestion that has been made that this was involuntary there's been a a shift in power. Yeah. And there comes a you know I I hate to say it but you could sort of there's there's a little Remember how much merchandising there was for Disco Elysium? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Right? Doesn't that seem weird? I mean... For a game like Disco Elysium? Yeah. And I want I want a successful, you know, like a successful group of people who put out a great project to be able to profit from it. This is an avenue for it. It could fund more great art. But at the same time, Disco Elysium had a lot of fucking merch. Look. This is exactly like it, it, it's very simple to, to to lay out what's happened here. A game that is largely a very direct critique of capitalism, among other things, is a, also a product that had to exist within capitalism. Yep. And capitalism ate it. It ate it. Yeah. It it looked at a piece of media and said, uh, "Deeper thematic elements. Never heard of them." Gotta sell hoodies. Yeah, it's got a really good limited edition, though. Like the collector's edition. <laughs> My God, you should see the holographic effects on the, the art book. It's really good. Like, I like that that exists yeah. because I want to financially reward the people that made a thing that I like and I'm happy to own a thing for a beautiful piece of art. Yeah. Yep. It just, 
you know, if I could do that without like the things that come later with capitalism. Can I just have a little capitalism? Just a little, can I have just a little capitalism? No, 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 no no capitalism for you. Yeah, Uh, I I found the the studio's White, uh, white background, black text, uh, Twitter image. Ah, Solemn JPEG. Yeah, Solemn JPEG. Like any video game, the development of Disco Elysium was and still is a collective effort, with every team member's contribution essential and valued as part of- Good choice of word. Good choice of word. Hang on. I just want to roll back. I like that choice of word. Collective. Interesting choice of word. Yep. Collective. Collective. Mmm. At this time, we have no further comment to make, other than that ZA slash UM creative team's focus remains on the development of our next project, and we are excited to share more news with you on the, uh, with the, with you all soon. Hey, we, we're not going to tell you why it happened, but please be excited for product. Oh dear. So yeah, that's, that's just disappointing. Can't we just let people who, who have Good creative ideas make things free of the yoke of capitalism. Never happening. No. Uh, but they're hiring. <laughs> they're currently hiring. <laughs> yeah, they're hiring for like six new positions right now, so go, go, get, go get those job openings, I guess. Uh, a, a slightly less heavy one. Uh, you know how like Sony's been bringing more and more of their like PlayStation games to PC? Yeah. Which has been pretty nice. Uh, it seems like that's going to be a... a a, a trend going forwards and one of the questions people have had about that is will we ever reach a point where they're day and day releases where they come out same day on playstation and uh pc and i think most of us assumed the answer is no yeah and like for now the answer does seem to be no but the answer that sony has given is actually a lot better than i anticipated as a statement that was given this week they plan to have at least a one year window between launching on console and pc reasonable and you know what a year is a very reasonable length of gap. Yeah. I'm very okay with 12, 12 months is close enough to the original release that people aren't going to feel like they're completely missing out, but enough time for you to, I guess, push people towards console if that's what you want to do financially and or, you know, have time to build the PC port. I wait a year to play most major releases that I'm going to play anyway. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Do it. Yeah. A, a year's gap is honestly, like, if they reach a point where every major release they do comes to PC 12 months later, that is better than I ever expected out of Sony. Well, and and then, you know, they can also time that to their PlayStation Plus, you know, release on console. Yeah. You know, for their major titles a year later, and everybody's happy. Yeah, you get a new wave of people playing it on console and talking about it because it's on, on PlayStation Plus at the same time as the PC audience talks about it. You get a second wave of people saying your game's good. Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental difference between um, Microsoft and Sony is that, uh, you know, a huge portion of the planet isn't using computers running on Sony's operating system. Go figure. Yeah. Obviously, like, no, why would they put it out day and date? They got the console for that. It's a, a completely separate ecosystem. But I do like the idea that's hinted at in this article about live service titles being day and date. Yes, which I I understand from the perspective of they want people to have more people to play with. Well, then live service games only live three months. <laughs> yeah, that's 
that is fair. Right? No one's going to be playing them a year later if that's when you bring them to PC. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and it's too, that a year is too long to hope that a live service game will be reinvigorated by the arrival of another platform's players. That, they just don't last that long. Yeah, you need as many players as possible all at, all at the start. Yeah. 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 That's the only, that's how all of the, all of these are built along that model that we're going to have this huge flood and then we're going to get little ticks of, re, of getting some retention return, mm. you know, at intervals as we add content, but, but it's always going to slide down and they all know that it's just how high can you get it and how long can you maintain? Exactly. Uh, and there's too many of them. Yeah, it is unsustainable. Yeah, we've got a couple of other stories to rattle off quick. Uh, we don't need to go into too much depth on these. Um, Stadia is dead. Yeah. Or it will be on January whatever date next year. It's, 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 it's gone. It's done. Another product in the Google graveyard. 274 bodies in that graveyard now. Yep. You know what? Like the, the Look, other than like, you know, the obvious things we have to talk about, about like developers not being told that it was being cancelled until the news was already public, shit like that's like bad. Honestly, my main takeaway from this is I am surprised that they are offering to pay back everything that everyone spent on Stadia. That is more than they are contractually obligated to do. And I don't think it really would have hurt them in the long run not to do it. And I guess that's something. Well, they might want to come back to video games someday because they're not stupid. They recognize how huge the market potential is. Yeah. And people will remember Stadia one way or another. Yes. Right? Nobody's going to forget Stadia existed. So do you want them to remember that when it went wrong, you made it right? With those people, with the people who committed to following it in the first place. Because the rest of us over here are like, I don't give fuck one about Stadia. I don't trust it. I don't think it's a practical platform. Its longevity was always in question for me personally. I mean, I feel like the bigger thing this does is it gives a certain degree of confidence uh, to people going into their next attempt at video games to go, maybe it's okay for me to put a bit of money in on this because if it dies... Maybe I'll get it back. Exactly. And it makes it seem less of a daunting prospect to take a chance on whatever they try next. Right. Yeah. And and for those of us who watched them do it from the outside and, and, and sees them do this, it's like, all right, you know what? At least you were fair about it. Yeah. You know, you didn't you didn't build up expectations, get people to buy in, and then rug pull them. You know? Yeah. This this you, you at the very least this was a money pit you sunk a lot of money into and not a financially profitable rug pull. And, and you, as a huge, 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 huge fucking company, can do this without pain. It's not going to hurt Alphabet to do this. Yeah. And good news, though. Yeah. Guilt. We'll be coming to other platforms now. That's also good. Ah. Yeah, Guilt was, um, you know, a Stadia exclusive. Uh, they've said uh, Tequila Works, uh, a studio that's done some really good games, uh, including The Sexy Brutale, which is one of my favorite games of all time. Yeah, Guilt was a Stadia exclusive in 2023. It's going to go multi-platform because, I, well, it's got no choice now if it wants to still be bought and played. Um, so, yeah, yeah, probably coming to all the consoles and all that. So, yeah, at least there's that. 
This is far from the worst collapse of a service that has ever happened. Well, yeah. And then, you know, everyone had to have seen it, like, known it was coming. Oh, yeah. I mean, for God's sake, like, Phil Harrison, like, said that ISPs will uh, not, like, like, limit data for Stadia because they're in the business of keeping their customers happy. <laughs> like, like, when your VP is hitting out with patter that fucking naive and, and honestly embarrassingly stupid. Well, he's, he's probably never had to deal with an ISP. Well, no, no. Right? He's got some fucking T3 line running directly into his house. He don't give a fuck. Because he has no idea. Very out of touch. Yeah. Very out of touch. And he was supposed to be the, you know, he was the huge advocate for Google Stadia. And he had no clue how, like, like the average person, uh, what their their internet experience is like. To say nothing of their ability to stream games like this. Um, Stadia was doomed from the start because it overestimated um, how many people were interested and underestimated the challenges in giving it to them. Yeah. Yeah, they Googled it, basically. Couldn't have put it better myself. A couple of very quick stories we'll route through, but these two, like, are just things to keep an eye on for the future that both feel thematically connected stories. The government of Saudi Arabia wants to uh, purchase a major video game publisher as part of a $32 billion round of investments in the video game industry. We don't know which publisher it's looking to purchase, but... uh. Twelve billion pounds of that money Fucking is earmarked hell. for the acquisition of a leading game publisher to become a strategic development partner. So, hey, reminder everyone, Saudi Arabia has a terrible human rights record and might soon own even more of the video game industry. Ubisoft. <laughs> yeah. 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 I that's what I'm saying, is they already own some. They might own even more soon. Well Yeah. Yeah. On a similar note. Uh, Tencent is aggressively seeking to purchase majority stakes in more gaming companies. Oh! Tencent would like to monopolize the fuck out of the games industry. Yeah, so reportedly they are resetting their strategy for how they want to deal with the video game industry by focusing on buying majority stakes, mainly in overseas gaming companies. Their their previous uh, strategy was apparently to be a passive financial investor, just put money in and get return. But now they want to aggressively own majority or even controlling stakes in companies in the in the core gaming sector because they want to have control over those companies. And of course, capitalism doesn't reward restraint. Capitalism, yes, like corporations um, don't do things by half, and they don't want some money. They're not happy with just returns. They want everything in the end. And this wouldn't, you know, it's already a bad story, but it's made worse by the fact that. It's also reported they want to make major uh, investments in crypto and oh, uh, mm-hmm. that whole space. What a surprise. Which, put it two and two together, oops, we're going to buy a majority stake in a game developer and put NFTs in all their games. Hooray. So that's a thing to look forward to. But to finish off this week, we have a sort of lighthearted story to, to end on. Okay. You know how you know how Duke Nukem Forever was like, Historically, the the longest in development, most delayed, most in development hell video game of all time in terms of like when it was announced to when it came out. Yeah. In terms of AAA games. Tell you what, right? Yeah. It was a bit bad as a result. Yeah. Right. Um. Well, funny you should say that. 
it's just been overtaken by a game that Ubisoft still alleges is definitely in development and going to release. Oh, you're joking. Beyond Good and Evil 2 has overtaken Duke Nukem Forever for the Guinness World Record oh, wow. for longest game in development. Wow. Yep. Yep. I'd completely forgotten. Yeah. I'd, I'd completely forgotten about Beyond Good and Evil 2 at this point. Yeah. So... Uh, the the previous record for Duke Nukem Forever was fourteen years in development. Mm-hmm. Beyond Good and Evil Two has now been more than fourteen years. It has been five thousand two hundred and thirty four days since the first trailer for Beyond Good and Evil Two, a game that we have seen one completely empty sandbox environment tech demo for three years ago, and plot that makes it sound like it's not what anyone would have wanted out of it anyway. So. Look forward to that game definitely being good after 14 years of it's definitely still happening. Oh, well, okay, so if Tencent buys them... Yeah. I can't see this going... I, like, if Tencent fi- decides that they want to... Assert, I cannot see them continuing development on this. This is a 14-year shit pile. Yeah. It's just an albatross. Yeah. Look... I'm amazed they didn't take the opportunity to cancel it when they got a chance because there was that moment when Michelle Ancel. Well, no, now they can't. They've got the record. They got to hold on to that. <laughs> well, no, if they cancel development now, it's. St- I guess. Nah. Did they have to release it for this record to stand? Who knows? But yeah, I, I had assumed they were going to cancel it when. Do you remember when Michelle Ancel mysteriously left the company to go run an animal sanctuary? Oh, you mean like in the middle of all of the heat of the allegations about worker abuse? Yeah, and it definitely wasn't a cover up for any allegations that were going to come his way, right? Uh, that's what I. That was what I was led to understand that there was absolutely yeah. nothing to cover up, and that's why he went to go work for an animal sanctuary from his executive position in the video game game industry. But like the thing that like always got me about that is all of the interviews for forever about Beyond Good and Evil 2 have really stressed that Oncel was the only person at that studio who like was begging for that game to happen, wouldn't let it die, kept trying to make it live. Kept pushing it, yeah. Yeah. Just carrying water for it for a long time. You'd think once he's gone it's over. Yeah, I really assumed when it went quiet after his departure it was dead and then they were like nope, we're still doing it. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> Look forward to definitely a not not a mess of a video game releasing at some point, maybe a decade from now, Christ. from a company whose games we that we don't support. Maybe Gearbox can take it over. Uh, so I, th- I think that's everything for this week. I think we did it. We did it. Yay. We did all that news. But it's not all we've did. It's not all we have did. Laura. Me? Yeah, Laura, Laura, you've did other things. I, I have did other things, yeah. Could you tell us about them, please? I mean, you, you could go find all the things I do at Laura K Buzz on the internet. You can... What can you find? Uh, every Friday, I upload episodes of Accessibility over on YouTube.com slash Laura K Buzz. Uh, that's a bunch of videos about accessibility in video games. Go check those out. There's like 100 plus of them that have been made over the last two years. Other than that, uh, you, you you can support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Laura K Buzz. That's what pays the bills. As little as a dollar a month really adds up. Please chuck some bucks in if you can. It's just Laura K Buzz, laurakbuzz.com. I post links to everything there. Go check out Laura K Buzz. 
What about you, Conrad? Oh, you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Twitter and Instagram. You can hang out with me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash that Conrad Zimmerman. Been watching that, Alex. Alex Jones is a coward. Yeah. I know this surprises no one, but he's not He's not going to testify now. Coward. Uh, you can buy anti-capitalist propaganda from me at pinfultruth.com, audiobooks at conradreads.com, and everything I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? <gasps> oh, I think I can guess. It's James Stephanie Sterling, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was right. Oh. I have a Patreon. Yeah. Uh, it's at patreon.com slash gymquisition. Um, you can go on that if you want. Uh, now that I've got my internet back, I'm streaming more regularly. Uh, so you can see me there at twitch.tv slash jimsterling. Uh, our current wrestling dates look like this. Uh, this Saturday... Uh, Saturday the 8th of October I will be in Blackpool for PCW uh, This is Sterling versus Miller The one-on-one match uh, Super excited about that uh, A match six years in the making It's going to be great uh, Do feel free to come along November 4th, Leeds It has been announced Commander Sterling versus Nathan Black uh, <gasps> One of the few people I genuinely hate in professional wrestling. Um, I genuinely despise the man, um, so I can't wait to, to kick the crap out of him. Uh, November 12th, I'll be in Newcastle for Avant Garde. November 20th, I'll be in Leicester for um, uh, Wrestling Resurgence. Uh, those are the current confirmed wrestling dates. I'm sure we'll have uh, more news in future. Uh, until then, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting the show, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.